All right, so let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for tonight. And God, you know, I just pray as we go through the book of Acts, uh, just looking at Paul's life, his journey, um, and now that, um, well, after tonight, probably he'll end up um, on the road to Rome. But God, we're just uh, amazed at your faithfulness uh, throughout the book of Acts. And it's, um, it's just so challenging, Lord, to see that. And we're, uh, we're so thankful, God, that uh, you haven't changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that you're just as faithful, Lord, just as involved in the church as you were back in the first century. So we thank you for that and for being a part of our night. Lord, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Sunday night, we actually were in the beginning of um, Acts 25. So we ended up getting the first 13 of Acts 25. So I'm going to just kind of give you a recap um, where we're at. Acts 25. Excuse me. Oh, verse 13. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. All right. <clears throat> so uh, there's a, a change of hands. Felix is replaced by Festus. And, uh, you know, there's a couple different reasons that I read why Felix was, was removed for, from his position. Um, but, you know, really, I guess what's important is the fact that he's gone and Festus is in his place. So Festus uh, comes into in the power. He leaves Caesarea and goes up to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem, and first thing, um, the Jews, the council, the Sanhedrin, they confront him about Paul. If you remember, Paul is in Caesarea now. Um, in prison in Caesarea, uh, Felix had heard his case and kind of put him on hold. Uh, Festus is pretty much doing the same thing. He goes up to Jerusalem and, um, you know, they really uh, come down on him, the Jews, about, you know, wanting, uh, you know, Paul to be tried, sentenced, and executed. You know, their hatred for Paul, I mean, if you been following us, following this through in the book of Acts. I mean, Paul really um, had a way of getting under the Jewish, under uh, well, this, the Jewish council and the Jewish leaders, getting under their skin, um, you know, preaching the gospel, um, just didn't go over well with them. And, you know, they'd listen for a while, but as soon as he would mention the Gentiles, it would be like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. You know, it was like going over the edge. So he is, um, he's in Caesarea, Festus is in uh, Jerusalem. Now, they want, they're asking, requesting him to bring Paul back up to Jerusalem to be tried. For whatever reason, uh, Festus says, uh, you know, that's not going to happen. If you guys want to present your case again, then come down to Caesarea and do it. So he goes back, Festus goes back to Caesarea Next day, um, the council, the, um, you know, the Jewish leadership comes down, uh, can't really make a case, kind of go back and forth. So um, Festus asked Paul if he would be willing to go up to Jerusalem and have the charges handled there. And of course, Paul already knew that they had, had laid an ambush for him to come from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Uh, so he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't going for any more movement back to Jerusalem. Really believed that that was the Lord, um, you know, just giving him that word of wisdom, that word of knowledge. Paul refuses to go back to Jerusalem, and he appeals to Caesar. That happens in verses 10, 11, and 12 of the chapter, of, you know, this chapter. So Festus says, okay, you appeal to Caesar, and then to Caesar, you're going. And uh, we mentioned this Sunday night that this really kind of took the wind out of the sails of the Jewish leadership because once there is an appeal made to Caesar and it's granted, there's no other, that's it. 
It's like the end of the story. You can't, you know, can't pursue any more charges. You can't, no more court, no nothing. The next person that Paul is going to stand before is going to be, for, for trial purposes, is going to be Caesar. So that really, uh, the Jews kept pushing it, pushing it, and the Lord just said, hey, you know what, keep pushing. They kept pushing, and Paul makes that appeal and puts an end to their, um, their efforts to, to get Paul. So if we pick, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 13. And it says that after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. So this is like an official kind of greeting. Festus just takes this position. Um, Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa was more, uh, had more oversight over Jerusalem and, you know, the temple area. He, um, you know, he had the oversight of appointing, um, you know, the high priest. So this is more like a, a greeting, just kind of welcoming him into the office. But when I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, it's, it's a lot more than that because, you know, God is going to give Agrippa and uh, Bernice um, an opportunity to hear the gospel. And, you know, I was thinking of Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it's just, you know, just my mind working, you know, God's giving uh, King Agrippa an opportunity to hear the gospel and to get saved, and his bride. And we're going to see as we go through the chapter, he's going to be giving, um, there's going to be probably close to 2,500 people hearing the gospel as we move through the chapter. So, like I said, King Agrippa had authority over Jerusalem Whereas, you know, Festus had more of a regional reach uh, for his power. But uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on King Agrippa and his wife. Well, it's not actually his wife, it's his sister. So King Agrippa, that's Herod Agrippa II, was son of Herod, uh, the Herod who killed James and imprisoned Peter in Acts 12. He was the last of the Herods to play a prominent role in, the New, in New Testament history. His great uncle, Herod Antipas, was the Herod of the Gospels, while his great-grandfather, Herod the Great, ruled at the time uh, Jesus was born. So, I mean, he's got a, a really crazy lineage of, you know, parents and grandparents that played some prominent roles in uh, New Testament history. Now, Bernice, like I said, was not his wife. Um, some, of, um, you know, some of the stuff I read online referred to her as her, his consort, uh, which uh, you know, really is a, a, an associate that always seems to be with you. Um, in this particular case, um, it was his sister. Um, their other sister is, was Drusilla, who was Felix's wife. And um, the relationship between Agrippa and his sister just uh, was the talk of Rome at the time, you know. And it just gives you a little bit of insight into their character, um, you know, who's, uh, who's running things. And um, it's just a little weird to think that people that, that live their lives that way could have so much authority and so much influence, but usually, you know, that's just the way it is, and we see it today. You know, sometimes you question the people that are, some of the people that are in authority, um, when you see some of the things, some of the way you see them act, some of the things that they say, you just wonder, you know, wow, how did, how did that happen? But nonetheless, Agrippa and Bernice are there. Festus has a problem and the problem is that he can't send Paul to, to Rome without a reason. You know, you, you can't send him there without some official charge. So this is um, the same problem that Lysias had in Acts 22 when originally he was going to send Paul to, um, to Felix. 
So right now, Agrippa shows up, and you know, Agrippa has a lot of history with um, the Jewish community, and we'll, I'll point that out in a little bit. But let's read, um, let's read a few more verses as you know, this story unfolds. And you know, it's, it's something that, that stuck out in my mind, and I forgot to mention it because I, I didn't have my little yellow sheet out. And I lost it anyway. You know what I wanted to point out? This is something I, I wanted to point it out in the beginning just to kind of get you thinking in that direction. You know, in the book of Acts, there's not, um, you know, there, there's some doctrinal stuff established in the book of Acts. But one thing that sticks out in my mind the most about the book of Acts is God's faithfulness. You know, his faithfulness, his involvement, you know, as the church is growing. Um, and, and, and none of that has changed. You know, God is still just as involved in the church today as he was back then. Still doing the same thing, you know, just strengthening the church, you know, strengthening the leadership of the church, um, you know, moving in miraculous ways, you know, people getting saved. And it's really... You know, they call it the Acts of the Apostles. There's been a lot of different names, you know, but, you know, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, for me, just reading through the book of Acts, and this is like about the third time going through it, that it's just, you know, God is there. And, you know, of course, you know, we could say this from Genesis right through Revelation. But just to, to understand where God's hand is in the church, and, you know, to be able to look at that and relate to that today, that just knowing that God is just as involved today as he was in the first century. You know, he's just involved in our lives today as much as he was in Adam and Eve's. You know, God has not changed. And what, what is motivating Paul, what is driving Paul is his love for Christ. And God's faithfulness in his life, just wanting to serve him. And, you know, that's, um, you know, that's my prayer, that, you know, we would just continue to serve God out of a pure heart, simply because we love him and, and simply because of what he's done for us. So, and, and you know, we, and we've seen that in Paul up to this point. We've seen it through, you know, all of the disciples going through the book of Acts and we're going to see it as we go a little further, just God's hand in all of this. So let's pick back up in verse 14. It says, And one day, that being Agrippa and Bernice, had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accuser face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charges against him. So Agrippa and Bernice have been there for a while. Um, like I said, uh, he, uh, he has a... a, a, a just a really a vast knowledge of uh, the Jewish religion, uh, Judaism. And Festus is hoping to get some kind of understanding from him. So he goes on to tell Agrippa that, therefore, when in verse 17, when they had come together without any delay, he's talking about the Jews coming down um, from Jerusalem to Caesarea, so he says, on the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed. But I had some question against him, or, but had some question against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus whom had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. So Festus is you know, just telling them they, I thought that they had some serious charge against him that, you know, that, that they wanted to give him the death penalty, but there was really um, nothing against Roman law 
that I could charge him or, you know, convict him of anything. So, in fact, everything that they were talking about was all around Paul talking about the resurrection, right? That the dispute about um, between the Sadducees and the Pharisees about the resurrection. If you remember a few chapters back, Paul had purposely brought that up to, um, to kind of get the Sadducees and the Pharisees going uh, at each other to take the heat off of him when he was facing the, you know, the council. So, you know, nothing much has really changed. You know, when you talk about Jesus and the resurrection, about Jesus being the only way, right, nothing has changed. Um, you know, it's, there's always going to be a dispute over that uh, in religion. So in verses 20 through, 20 through 22, he says, And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept, to, kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like, to hear this, the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So, you know, Festus is, you know, just having this conversation with Agrippa. I didn't, had no idea what to say or what to think about these matters, these Jewish matters. Um, and he's just hoping that Agrippa is going to help him fill in the blanks. So Agrippa agrees to, to hear him. Um, tomorrow, so he's gonna, they're going to get together and, and hear um, what Paul has to say. But, you know, this is, so we're going to see Paul's witness to Agrippa. And there's three defenses that Paul gives throughout the book of Acts. Acts 22, then Acts 24, and then Acts 26. So the one we're going to look at tonight, this one before Agrippa is the longest message in Acts, that Paul, Paul's longest message in Acts, and he gives the most detailed exposition of the gospel in this section that we're going to look at tonight. And, uh, well, if we don't finish tonight, than the next Sunday night that I teach. So let's finish off the chapter, and we'll get into chapter 26. So in verse 23 it says, So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with the great pomp and entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. So this is something, like I want to paint a picture for you guys a little bit here. He's in an amphitheater that they say holds roughly 2,500 people. So if you could picture that, you know, kind of like an amphitheater. Now, it's, when it talks about commanders, the commanders in the Roman army were commanders over 1,000 troops. So these are pretty influential men themselves. Lysias, um, who was one of the commanders that we had... Um, Kind of got to look at back in Acts 22 and 23, um, you know, give you an idea of um, the kind of man these commanders were. They were very loyal. Then there were prominent men in the city. Um, I don't know. It doesn't say if um, the Jewish council was there. Um, doesn't give um, a lot of detail on, how, you know, what type of the crowd was outside of these few folks mentioned. But the but the amphitheater held 2,500 people. So it says that Festus commanded Paul to be brought in. So picture, if you will, this place packed. And here comes Paul. Was he, you know, was he in chains? Was, you know, you know was he in prisoner garb? You know, what, how was he dressed? And here he is facing this amphitheater, amphitheater full of influential people, military people. Like I said, maybe part of the Jewish council. 
And he's going to be set before them to give an account and to speak before Agrippa. And, you know, you think that that would be intimidating. But, you know, back in Acts 23, 11, when Paul was in a prison cell, the Lord told him that he was really pleased with the way that he conducted himself and, you know, going to Jerusalem and now that he was going to send him to Rome. Back in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, after Ananias prayed for him, in that whole chapter, the Lord told Paul that he was going to go to speak before the Jews, the Gentiles, and kings. So Paul, his, his relationship with the Lord, his, um, his communication, his fellowship, his relationship with the Lord, I think Paul is like looking forward to this. He's in this amphitheater with all these people, and I got to think in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I cannot believe, look at the crowd. You know, look at this audience I have to share the gospel with. You know, and he's going to give, um, he's going to share his testimony, but he's going to, it's just amazing the way he does it because he, he, he just lays it all out. By the time he's done, you know, he's, Agrippa has to see that, you know, Paul is on this mission. He hasn't done anything wrong. And, you know, he's going to definitely hear the gospel. So the opportunities you have to share are all God. They're all God-ordained. You know, when we open our mouths, when we take that step of faith, when we want to share the gospel, you know, God opens that door for us. And like Paul, you know, we should be excited about those opportunities because God has given us them. And, you know, he's looking at this, these maybe 2,500 people of unsaved people. What an opportunity. So as, Paul, as the Lord gives us opportunity, we need to take it as well. So in verse 24, uh, Festus, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man, now is he pointing to Paul? You know, now all eyes are on Paul. You see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. Now, how, how much do you got to not, you know, not like somebody to say he's not fit? He's not even fit to be alive. You know, I mean, they, and, and, and you know, they, they thought that they were fighting against Paul all this time. But, you know, really, they were only fighting against God. You know, and that's the reality of it. When we, um, you know, when we're kicking and just fussing with the Lord, I mean, it's, it never works out. It never works out. So, you know, there, you know, presents, he wants, he's going to get, wants help from this crowd. So, but in the last two verses of the chapter, it says, but when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. So he says in verse 26, I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. So we're going to get into, um, we're going to get into chapter uh, 26. So Paul is going to be on his way to Rome shortly. And, you know, it's, it's funny, in verse, um, in verse 26, um, he says um, he brought these guys out because he, 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 doesn't have, he needs something to write. He doesn't have anything to write um, as he's going to send him to, um, to Rome. And I'm thinking, you know, by the time Paul is done, he, he's going to have an awful lot to write. You know, what is he going to write? You know, I'm sure um, not the gospel, but he's going to, you know, he's going to have an awful lot to think about. 
um, because Paul is really going to, um, you know, just sharing his life. And it's, his testimony is, un, well, we all know his testimony, but think about it. For a guy who is a novice and doesn't even know that who Jesus is, right, because the way Festus remarked about how this reference to, to this Jesus who he didn't know. So he's going to have an opportunity, just like everybody in that auditorium is, um, to hear the gospel. So Paul's main purpose was simply not to defend himself, but to give a defense or a reason of the hope that he has in Christ and to convert Agrippa and the others present. And like I said, what an opportunity for Paul. So let's read a few verses in uh, the beginning of chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions um, which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So I, I like that, that phrase in verse 2, I think myself happy. And, you know, it, to give a defense to you and, and everyone else that's here for the hope that I have in Jesus. Now, a few years after this, Peter would write this, and I, you know, both Peter and Paul lived this out, and we're witnesses, you know, we're a witness to this. First Peter, in, verse, in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, it says, Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed or happy. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And you, could, you can see both Peter and Paul, I mean, this was so real to them, right? But what does Peter goes on to say? But sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. And Paul's going to do that. Paul, that's what Paul is going to do. And, and Peter had plenty of opportunity as well, obviously. In verse 16, it says, And having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So Paul is uh, simply going to just, and happily, I should say, <laughs> uh, recount the facts of the time before, uh, before he got saved and after he got saved, and basically his testimony. And it's, it's interesting, he's going to, Paul is going to tell um, Agrippa, Festus, and these, this group in the auditorium who he was before Christ and who he is now since salvation. So he's going to say, okay, this is how I was, this is what I'm doing now, and, this is, and the reason why I'm here is because this is God's plan that's working out in my life. I'm here, because, I'm here basically Paul is there because God wanted him there. God wanted him there to speak to these guys, to speak to that group of men, women, whoever um, was there. So Paul's going to start. In verse 4, he says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know, they knew me from the first, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So Paul is just telling them, Hey, look, uh, you know, this is the way I lived. And if there's anybody in the council there in the auditorium, ask them. They knew if they knew the way I was. Um, at that point, I don't think Paul feels that they would be willing even to admit that. But let you know. With that said, um, you know Paul gives a, a clear picture for us in Philippians 
how he lived his life prior to getting saved. In Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, it says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. You know, so, you know, Paul was, and we, we know this, Paul was like anti-anti-church, right? He hated the church, right? Because he was this committed Pharisee who thought that the church was this um, fringe group, some, you know, a bunch of crazies talking about Jesus being the Messiah. Everything, it cut against everything that Paul believed. So in verse 6, it says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? So Paul basically is saying the hope of the promise. You know, he's being judged for the hope of the promise made by God to his fathers throughout Judaism, right? Now it was now he's on trial for no greater crime than the fact that he's clinging to the hope of the promise that God had made. To, to, to Paul and to his forefathers. You know, he's being judged for believing what God said, believing the promise of God. Paul was not being judged because he had done something wrong. You know, he hadn't turned against his Jewish heritage. He wasn't, you know, a heretic. Instead, he fervently believed in the promises of God the promises that God made to the nation of Israel, of the promise of the coming Messiah and the reestablishment of the kingdom of God. Paul, so Paul is, is telling these guys, See, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm here because I believe the word of God. I'm here because I believe the word of God. Paul was persecuted for that. And you know what? You know, from the the from the beginning of the church until the Lord comes back, people, we're going to be persecuted for believing the word of God because the word of God runs counter to the way the world is today. They can say that this sheet of paper is white or I could say it's white, they say it's black. You know, at this point in the history of the church, everything is like turned totally around. Everything is, is just total, totally twisted around where you could, uh, I don't even want to get into it. You guys know how weird things are, okay? And for Paul, and Paul is just there for that, pretty much for that reason. Paul is believing what God said, and he's standing on those promises. And it just happened to um, ruffle the feathers of the, you know, the leadership in the Jewish community, you know, the council, the Sanhedrin. You know, everything that Paul was saying was, was totally, totally something that, that they wanted to happen but didn't believe it was Jesus. They were totally blind to Jesus being the Messiah. You know, Paul is being accused of the Jews as being a heretic for standing up for the truth. And if the Lord doesn't come back soon, that'll be happening to the church. That'll be happening to the church because we're going to say things are this way, and they're going to look at us and say, you're crazy, things aren't that way, you know, and we don't appreciate, your, you know, your hate speech. Or we don't appreciate your view on this. And if you keep talking about it this way, 
then you know we'll put you in jail or we'll take away your tax exempt, whatever. But it's coming. It's coming, and we know that. We definitely know that. So, you know, Paul is, he's being persecuted by the Jews because he has his hope in the coming Messiah. Everything that they were longing for to happen. So, verse 7. So, to the promise, to this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hoped to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. And in verse 8, he says, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? You know, Paul found it inconceivable that he should be condemned for believing in the resurrection, that great hope of the Jewish nation, right? Paul's crime was that he believed that God would fulfill his promises. And, you know, Paul asked Agrippa and all those that were there with him, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead or that God would be true to his word? You know, why is that incredible? Why should that shock you that God Almighty would be faithful? Why would it shock you that he would be faithful to keep his word? And, guys, I hope it doesn't shock you that God is faithful to keep his word. I mean, sometimes we pray, and God answers our prayer, and we're like, whoa. Man, I can't believe God did that, right? I mean, that's, that's well, I must be, I'm the only one that's happened to. But you guys know what I'm saying. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we're just praying and just believing God, and he does it. And sometimes we're like, wow, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Lord. You know, Paul is just saying, why do you think it's incredible for, you know, God can do anything. You know, God can do anything. Why, why do you guys feel that, you know, that God couldn't do this? And he's just, you know, presenting them, you know, just with, you know, the, the credibility of God and his word. And, you know, we, of course, we know the credibility of God and, you know, God's word. So let's read on a little further. So it says, Paul says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now he's going to kind of get into how he was before he got saved. Um, this I also did in Jerusalem, and as many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul, you know, counted the savage and continuous campaign. He had this campaign, really a savage campaign, that he waged against the followers of Jesus Christ. You know, and he's just, you know, telling this group, Agrippa, these folks that are in the auditorium, you know, just how he was against the church. And I think he's doing this to kind of set the stage that even as much as he was against the church, that when God touched him, it changed his whole outlook, his whole life. And this is what, he's, this is what he wants for them, for these folks that are hearing um, this message. So, you know, Paul had a hatred for the church. So it says, while in verse, in verse 12, it says, While thus occupied, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commissioned from the chief priest. And, you know, maybe some of them were present right there in the auditorium. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So we're pretty much familiar with the story, right? The account of Paul 
back in Acts 9, he's on his way to Damascus to, with letters and authority to take believers from Damascus back to Jerusalem for punishment. It's in the middle of the day. He's overcome by this light from heaven. And he says it's brighter than the midday sun. And I've never been to Israel, but I understand that at midday in Israel, that sun is like bright. And this was brighter than that. And he, you know, he, you know, he tells him how he fell to the ground. He heard the voice and, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, and <laughs> talks about Paul kicking against the goads and, you know, Paul was stubborn. Paul was as stubborn as those people that were trying to put him to death. But God, right, that's, that was the difference between Paul and them, but God. Paul met the Lord, and it changed his whole life. And I know for sure you guys uh, can relate to that. So even more important, Paul was kicking against the goads. He was fighting the conviction or the voice of the Holy Spirit. And he, um, and I think in Paul's mind, he never really got that picture of Stephen out of his mind, because Paul was there consenting to the death of Stephen, you know. And Stephen was really Paul's mentor in a sense, and Paul was Stephen's only convert. So you can see that, you know, Paul was affected uh, by Stephen. He had been fighting against God Himself. And notice that Paul was fighting. God wasn't fighting back. God was extending his grace into Paul's life. And, you know, that was the case with all of us. Not that we were purposely fighting against God, but we were ignoring God or just thinking that we didn't need God. And, you know, instead of God getting an attitude with us, he just extended his grace and his love even more. You know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I can think of the place where I was at. You know, God would have been justified to just say, hey, you know what? Later for you. Later for you. But what, you know, he just kept extending that grace into our lives. And we're here today because of the grace of God. And that's what he was doing in Paul's life. Paul was experiencing the grace of God, and it transformed his life. You know, grace meant a lot to Paul. You know, when you think of the Apostle John, you, you know, he would be the guy to write about grace. But if you look at John, the Gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation, he uses the word grace seven times. So you think Peter uses, would use grace a lot. He uses grace sparingly uh, when he talks about the manifold grace of God. He uses the word twice. And in the Greek, that, that, that manifold grace means a grace of varied color or having various tones to it. And that's the kind of grace um, that Peter needed because Peter was one day, one way one day and another way another day. And, you know, he was back and forth and he needed um, a manifold type of grace for his life. But Paul used the word grace 120 times in his writings. And I like Paul's thought on grace as he inspired by the Holy Spirit, obviously, when he wrote Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where Paul said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in his presence, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people, zealous for good works." So Paul is saying that grace brought us to salvation. Grace keeps us today. And grace is the only thing that could cause us to look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. 
You know, how could we look forward to that without grace? So let's read a few more verses, and we're going to take communion tonight, so I don't want to get too far behind with that. So let's read, um, let's read up to verse 18. So I said, and now this is Paul's response to the Lord. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, you almost got to take a pause and, and kind of think of what's going through everybody's mind that's listening. You know, for some of, some of these folks, they're hearing this for the first time. Um, for some folks that have been maybe, maybe some of the, the commanders who, you know, the Roman soldiers who have been out more into the Jewish community, um, it's hard to say. But one thing I'm certain of, that the Holy Spirit is moving in that amphitheater. Because, the word, you know, Paul is bringing forth the word. And it doesn't go out void. It always, you know, it doesn't go out void. It always accomplishes that purpose for which it was sent. You know, so these guys are hearing, um, you know, here's Paul. He's already established that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was highly respected in the Jewish community. He was persecuting the church. He hated the church. He hated Jesus. And now here he is on the, on the road to Damascus to, to take more Christians into custody and bring them back to Jerusalem. And this Jesus, who he's trying to persecute, knocks him off his horse and calls him. You know, so for us, this is like old news. For us, this is, we, we've heard this how many times that we've read through the book of Acts or we've heard the gospel message or we've, you know, read through the Bible. These people are hearing this for the first time. And it's just got to, you know, and, and I really believe that, you know, the order that Paul give, gives this whole message is inspired by God. Has to be. So he says that, he, he, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. And, you know, Paul is, he's going through this, but he's actually, now he's actually operating in the purpose that God called him, right? He's operating in this call, right? He says, um, I've appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you. So God has been revealing this to Paul. Now he's made him a minister, and he's a witness, and Paul is just, he's sharing everything that has happened in his life. And all it is doing is validating the faithfulness of God. Everything that Paul is saying is just, this is just validating what God has done in his life and what God had said that he would do. He said, I will deliver you from the Jewish people, which he's doing right as Paul is speaking, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, that he was going to the Gentiles, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in him. So Paul had to literally lose his religion to gain salvation. And, you know, guys, that's what we have to do. We have to lose. I mean, I had to lose the religion that I was in to get saved. It's just the way it is. And that's what Paul pretty much, that's what happened in his life. And he's trying to, to get that point across to these guys that no matter what you believe or what you think, it's all about Jesus Christ, right? And he said that he wanted him to open their eyes in verse 18 in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So I want to stop here because you know what? I think that's a beautiful introduction to communion because... Because of what Jesus Christ has done and did on the cross, 
you know, we're, we're here reading the book of Acts. The book of Acts wouldn't have happened without the cross. The church wouldn't be the church without the cross. But there would be no forgiveness. There would be no redemption. You know, Jesus' broken body and shed blood. I mean, he paid the price for us. So, and, and, you know, and it's, it's one of these things that we, we do a couple times a month. You know, we, we're so familiar with communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But, you know, it, it really is a time just to kind of take the elements and just reflect for a few minutes. You know, think. You know, we're, we're reading um, these, you know, this account in the book of Acts. You know, and, and this is, um, boy, this is, this is some of the most important history in, in the world. World, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they call, we call this like um, church history. But this is like world, this is world history, the most, some of the, the most important world history in the history of mankind, the gospel of Jesus Christ, God working through the history of mankind to get to that place where Jesus would be born from a virgin, live his life, and fulfill the purpose of God to redeem mankind, to go to the cross, to be crucified for, our, for us, to take our sin upon him, Think about that. Think about that, because if it weren't for that, when you leave this life, it would just be straight to eternity, separated from God. He redeemed us. He saved us from, man, he saved us from death. You know, and it's, it's um, you know, I could go on and on to try to, to get you to think about it even more, but I know you know what it's all about. You know, I know you know that. So we're going to, Sarah's going to play um, another worship song. The elements are up here. So come on up and, and grab those, take them back to your seat, and then um, after the song we'll pray and uh, we'll take communion together.